0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Jessica Leahy is an educator, speaker, and writer. She writes the bi-weekly, parent-teacher conference advice column for the New York Times, is a regular contributor to The Atlantic, and appears as a commentator on Vermont Public Radio. Jessica earned a JD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a concentration in juvenile and educational law. She's the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, publishing August 11th from HarperCollins. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have so many questions, and I, I want to thank you again for writing this book. I think it's something that we all need to hear. Now, you open the book with a quote from Shakespeare's Henry IV. Tell us, tell us why you chose that.
1: When I taught middle school, that was that tended to be the favorite Shakespeare in eighth grade, not just because there are some great battle scenes and the kids get to play with swords, But because there's this wonderful scene where Prince Hal, who has a terrible father, a father who has really come down hard on him for not stepping up to his job as a prince, um, as the person who's going to take over uh, and become king, Hal is really upset about that. And and it seems like Hal's not going to take on that mantle. And then in a beautiful soliloquy that's in in the front of the book, he steps forward on stage and lets the audience know that, hmm, he actually does get what his responsibility is, but he's not going to do it on anyone's schedule besides his. He's not going to do it on their schedule. He's not going to do it the way they want him to do it. Um, He's going to do it the way he wants to do it.
0: And that's true for all of us, right? So in, in your research and in your personal experience, we know now that there is the benefit of allowing them that independence. But why is it that the the phrase that you have um, I love therefore I provide I provide therefore I love Why do so many parents cling to that for what they I'm sure think is the right are the right reasons?
1: I think we get so few opportunities to check off that box, I was a good parent today, that when we do something like take a kid's missed homework, uh, homework that a kid left on the table, when we take that to school for them, we get to check off that box. We get to say, I showed my love today. Um, And unfortunately, the way we most often show our love tends to be in rescuing and saving. And... Unfortunately, how, what that ends up with is a kid who doesn't really understand the virtue of seeing what happens when they mess up on their own, um, figuring out how to rescue themselves. And sometimes we need to think about who we're trying to make happy with that gesture. Are we getting the ha- homework to school so we can check that box off so we can feel good, or are we trying to make our kid feel good?
0: Right. And what is it that you... You think that as parents in 2015, we're all so credulous of those who seek to stoke our parental fears, as as you very definitely put it. I think that, again, we were speaking before we went on about sort of this groupthink, that even if you want to let that child suffer not being able to turn in that assignment, you're really kind of swimming against the tide in, in so many cases.
1: There's this wonderful researcher. Her name is Wendy Grolnick, and she writes a lot about uh, what she called the, calls the pressured parents phenomenon. I wrote about it in an article called uh, Why Back to School Night Made Me Feel Like a Bad Parent. Because... Even someone like myself who is constantly thinking about how to step back and how not to interfere with my kids finding their autonomy, I go to back to school night and parents are talking about all the things that they do for their kids and all the lessons and all the tutoring. And then even I start to panic a little bit and have to step out of the room and sort of take a breath. And it's because, number one, it's contagious. This sort of pressured parents phenomenon thing is contagious. Plus... We want to protect our kids from threat, whether that threat is a kid who's doing better than them or a kid who wants to steal the soccer ball away from them. And our sort of reptile brains can't tell the difference between a saber-toothed tiger attacking our kids and a kid streaming down the field to take the soccer ball away. And it just taps into that protect our young kind of uh, feeling.
0: Can you tell us briefly about the evolution of parenting styles? Because that helped me sort of put it in perspective where we are today.
1: It's been interesting to see that we got to a point in the 50s where so much of taking care of children had become um, handed over to experts. And we were being told, parents were being told, that they couldn't do it themselves. And that had been going on for many years. And then all of a sudden we were given this opportunity through Dr. Spock to trust ourselves. I mean, he said specifically, you know more than you think you do. And while that's wonderful, it's also scary. And the same thing can happen when you try to hand autonomy over to your children right away is they want that autonomy, but if you give it all to them all of a sudden, it's scary. So Dr. Spock gave us back all of this autonomy and said, trust yourself. And that's wonderful, except we were so used to being told how to feed our kids and what dose of formula and what what this, that, and the other thing, that we had lost our ability to trust ourselves. And I think we're getting back on the road to trusting ourselves, but right now, everything is so high pressure, um, academics are so high pressure, and getting into the right college, and all of that stuff that we feel like we, at least I do, I feel like I need steps to get there. And that everything has become so prescriptive for parents that it's hard to trust ourselves. and. So getting to this place now where suddenly we realize not only do we have to trust ourselves, we have to learn to trust our kids again. Um, that's a lot to ask of us right now, but it's really important because our kids are losing their autonomy and losing their ability to think for themselves, and that's dangerous for them as yeah. well as for
0: us. Exactly. Now, you say that our fear of failure is, is short-sighted and it's unimaginative, but does it does it serve any purpose at all? How do you want to use that protection and and, and then let's set it aside.
1: When I talk about, let's say specifically homework, um, a lot of parents are sitting down at the table with their kids while they're doing their homework in an attempt to help them and guide them through it so their kid doesn't get too frustrated. Unfortunately that's having the opposite effect. When you're there answering the questions before they even have a chance to wrestle with the questions, it's not making them feel more competent. It's making them feel less competent. And so when I start talking to parents about homework and they say, well, I can't just leave the house, walk away and not help at all. And I say, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let our kids see us have our own lives. We're doing something else across the room. You're there in case they need you, but you're not stepping in at the first moment where frustration seems to happen. Um, There's some wonderful research showing that if we step in too soon, we create learned helplessness in our children. So being there for our children is so important. They need us, but they just don't need us there as quickly as we're stepping in or as often as we're stepping in. To us, it feels like we're saying, I love you. Unfortunately, what they're hearing is, I don't trust you, or I don't think you're competent to handle this yourself. And that is the last message we want to send, um, because what we're feeling in our hearts is I love you and I want to help you, Um, but maybe helping them uh,
0: requires us to step back a little bit. It's interesting in in my experience that sensitivity only increases. So I have a 16-year-old girl and even even when she's telling me if she's upset for something, if I offer a specific potential solution, she's very annoyed by that and Mm -hmm. it's very insulting to her. So I've, I have to try to remember, and I don't always remember, it. but just, just to say, just to talk back, oh, I understand, rather than, well, well, did you ask this question, or did you try this, or did you try that?
1: It's it, been interesting in writing about various aspects of parenting in, in my New York Times column. Over and over again, the answer from the expert seems to be, if you really want to help teens, Listen and reflect back that you understand that they're having the feelings that they're feeling, whether that's in children who self-injure, whether that's children with eating disorders, whether that's children with anxiety. The most important thing we can do is be there, listen, and reflect back that we validate that they are feeling the things they're feeling. And beyond that, you know, sometimes that's all they need.
0: Yeah, because she's, she's actually said if, if you offer a solution, it's like you're rushing past my feeling.
1: There's a great scene from the movie White Men Can't Jump with Woody Harrelson, and uh, I can't remember <laughs> her name, unfortunately, where he she says she's thirsty, and he offers to get her a glass of water, and she gets very upset. She says, I don't want you to solve the problem for me. For me, I want you to just empathize with my dry-mouthedness. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie Perez, that's
0: who Good. Good name recall. All right, so tell us what your interpretation of resilience is and why it's so important to develop and support that in our kids.
1: One of the things I've been seeing and actually the reason I wrote the book is I was seeing this so much in my classroom that my students were so afraid that they were going to make a mistake and look dumb or look like they didn't know what they were doing that they would get paralyzed. So. we've ended up with kids who are so afraid of that mistake that they are unable to be brave, to be intellectually brave. And to me, resilience really means, here's something I've produced here. Will you look at this for me and give me feedback? Um, My husband and I wrote an article together for The Atlantic called uh, Why Middle School Failures Lead to Medical School Success, because we both noticed that it was harder and harder for us to give our students feedback, my middle school students, his medical school students, and he made a medical student cry because he gave her basic, gentle feedback. She was just so unused to hearing criticism. So we realized that one of the big things that needs to happen is kids need to learn to get feedback f- f- at a much younger age. We're so, um, we're so interested in keeping their self-esteem up that we don't want to criticize anything they do or even give them constructive feedback. But getting constructive feedback and taking this what you need, rejecting what you don't think is valid... And learning how to pick yourself up and do it again is one of the most important things we can teach our kids. That's what resilience is about for me.
0: And it's it's like a muscle, right? Mm-hmm. You have to practice it.
1: Right. And kids who are unused to hearing any feedback really don't know what to do with it. It just upsets them.
0: Yeah. Now, talk to us about your three recommended goals. Let our kids embrace opportunities to fail, find ways to learn from failure. And this last one I think is particularly interesting create positive homeschool relationships? Well really the first two elements
1: came out of the idea that um, in our family um, we've really tried to move away from grades and towards goals and goals can be this fantastic place where you can set your own goals for what you want to achieve and if you fall short of those goals then you're really accountable to no one but yourself. And it's a really great stopgap between, you know, these big, glorious, long-term goals of I want to be an astronaut when I grow up versus I'd like to make a few new friends this school year or a few new friends this this first week of school. Having those kind of goals is so important. And when I talk about embracing opportunities to fail, one of the things that we try to do when we talk about goals in our family is to pick one that's hard. Pick one that you probably won't get and make that okay. Um, I didn't achieve this last time. And it could be anything. My 11-year-old, you know, his was, I want to try to keep my room clean for seven days in a row. And, you know, I don't know if he ever achieved that goal, but it was a part of his mental process that that was somehow important to him. It was important that I didn't come up with those goals for him. Um, Having these goals that you don't necessarily achieve and knowing how to how to redirect and and get there next time is really important. And then that last point. This really has to be a partnership. We're at a point now where um, many teachers are feeling like they're in an adversarial relationship with parents, and it was one of the most upsetting and uncomfortable parts of my teaching career. Believe me, I I taught kids um, with wonderful, wonderful parents. On the other hand, I also taught a lot of kids Where the parents made it nearly impossible for me to teach the kids about failure because they wouldn't accept any mistakes, they wouldn't accept any. Um, failure at all on the part of their child. And if the child did make a mistake, they would turn around and come back to the teacher and say, well, clearly you're doing something wrong. And I think teachers do want to own that part of the responsibility. It is a partnership. If a child is not learning, it it is the responsibility of the teacher to figure out how to do it better. But this can't be a big blame game or we're not going to get anywhere. When I first started realizing something was going wrong in my classroom, it was really important for me to say, "Okay, I can't just blame parents. I am a parent. So what am I doing wrong that's possibly impacting the way my own children are being perceived in their classroom by their teachers? So it you know it's a hard line to walk because there's blame on both sides and there's also wonderful stuff happening on both sides. And if we could just figure out how to work together a little more efficiently and and with the common goal, which is the students' education in our in our sites, I think we'd have a much more fruitful relationship.
0: What do you say to parents who worry that perhaps their child is too old to start to employ some of these techniques? They're too close to that college application and these real life important things that they can't mess up.
1: I don't think you can get to a point where you say the kid's just too old for that because one of the things I'm hearing from college professors is they are so surprised and overwhelmed by the lack of Capability for everyday interactions that the students are coming to colleges with now, the inability to have a, a grown-up conference with a teacher, the ability to just ask a professor for what they need in a, in a way that's polite and socially appropriate. Um, you know, I hear from professors all the time who um, who say something is clearly going wrong in earlier on, so that by the time they get to us, they just really don't know how to either advocate for themselves or to do anything on their own. So even when parents talk to me about juniors and seniors in high school, it's never too late. I think one of the big tricks, though, is that, and it's great because this is a wonderful tool you can use, is much of what I recommend is modeling your own willingness to admit to failure. And as a teacher, I try to do that. And as a parent, I try to do that. So if you have an older kid, especially I have a 16-year-old, if I were to go to him and say, look, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I've been going about this the wrong way. I'm really sorry. sorry. I would like to make a fresh start, give you a little more autonomy around homework. What would your ideal vision of um, getting your homework done in the way you want to get it done look like? And let's, let's try that out because the way I've been doing it is really handicapping you. So the nice thing about being honest with our kids is that it really models for them the ability right. to admit to failure and to move forward right. in a new positive way.
0: So now I, I want to talk to you as, as a book writer mm-hmm. right so you you have a lot of experience with magazine articles and everything else so tell us about your process of writing this book and what what your habits were and i am always curious about who uh authors first readers are who their most trusted allies where they show those early pages so, so tell us about all that
1: Moving from journalism to writing a, a book, is it's, they're two very different things. My headspace for my New York Times column is 850 words. My headspace for The Atlantic is around you know, 1, 1,200 words. So what I really didn't want to do was write a book that was a series of articles. And it needed to have an arc, and it needed to have a flow, and it needed to have... There were so many small details that really hadn't occurred to me, and I'm so grateful. My agent um, has a lot of editorial expertise, and she really was my first reader, and she was very smart about helping me get the flow down a little bit. And then my editor here at at Harper, Gail Winston, she really helped me step back and say, okay, let's make sure everything... All of the examples are in chronological, just these little yeah. things. Yeah. I, you know, it was hard for me as a journalist to see, I hate to say it, to see the forest for the trees. There mm-hmm. was just, there were so yeah. many trees and yeah. I couldn't keep track of them. And they were, they had are post-it notes all over my house and, and I couldn't keep track of everything. It was really hard. So having the time to really bounce that off of an agent and editor who, who I trusted, who I really respected and trusted and felt like I I could make mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. Oh, so and, you know, yeah. honestly, this this book was a, a big process of making a lot of mistakes, getting editorial feedback, um, and and fixing it. And as a journalist, I'm certainly not unused to editorial feedback. I've had to, you know, get a pretty thick skin about that. But for some reason, the book just felt bigger. The book felt emotionally bigger. It felt... You know, once you sell a book, there's an expectation yes. that there will be a book and it will be a certain thing. And that's a hard thing to live with all the time. Sometimes it just has to be about me sitting at the dining room table and writing. Oh.
0: yeah, because it it's the writing and it's the timeline, it's the, it yeah. the looming deadline. And writing at home is
1: is hard. You know, as a teacher, I had a very strict schedule in fact, I was teaching full-time when I started writing the book. I was teaching English and Latin and writing, uh, very full schedule. So is this high school now? or is This, this was middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Um, I had a very full schedule, and then, you know, you take grading home every night. So the book was – it was hard to get the book started under those conditions. So I took – I'm taking time off from full-time teaching. I now teach part-time. Um, but, te- you know, as everyone who works at home knows, it's really hard to not do the housework and not yeah. – you know, do that extra load of laundry and actually just write. And, and really for that, honestly, I turned to um, Stephen King's On Writing. And I, oh. he describes what his normal day looks like. And honestly, at this point, my day, I don't think I as much emulated him as ended up in a situation where my day just happens to look a heck of a lot like his.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah. All right, now I want to speak to you as a reader. <laughs> what was the last book you had a conversation about? And what did you say? Mm, The last book I had a –
1: well, the last book I had a conversation about was Ron Lieber's The Opposite of Spoiled because he and I write – our columns run opposite weeks in The New York Times and um, that – his writing, that book has has been a dialogue with readers and – KJ Delantonio, my editor at the New York Times, and Ron, we are constantly tossing ideas up about columns and what we could talk about and how things would fit together. And Ron's book has just come out, um, and, yeah. and we've been doing a lot of talking about
0: that. Yeah, Does, your 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 books are very complimentary, aren't they?
1: They are, and we've been doing a lot of talking about how we can how that information fits together nicely. I get the question a lot. Well, what do I do about allowance? So at that point, it's it's I, you know it's really nice for me that the book has finally come out because for me for a year I've been saying well there's a book coming out <laughs> that I'm will deal with that recommend- exact thing because you know money and money for grades and money for household duties is a really big issue and I deal with it in my book um, but. Ron's book really is about that entire conversation. Mm. And that's a hard conversation yes. to have. And it's outside of my wheelhouse. So yeah. it's really nice that that piece of the puzzle is that. sitting out there. You
0: can point to that. Now, what would you, What book would you recommend to a 13-year-old boy? Uh,
1: I just came uh, yesterday. I was in my classroom. And I had a classroom full of reluctant readers. Perfect. And I had um, one boy who says he will not read. Um, but I happen to know that he likes to deer hunt. And so I gave him um, Tovar Cerulli's book, The Mindful Carnivore, about a vegan who realized if he was going to eat meat, which he felt like he needed to do for his own personal health, he would have to hunt that meat. And so it's his process of becoming a hunter.
0: Wow. And
1: I think the kid seems to like that book. Um, we, I took in a bunch of Sherman Alexie mm-hmm. for some of the students. Um, I took in a copy of um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn yeah. for a girl who was going to be leaving my classroom, and I wanted to give her a really good sort of girl's coming-of-age uh, kind of book. Um, Stephen King's On Writing is a book I tend to hand to my students a lot. Um, that's a book that I feel like a 13-year-old could really yeah, get and feel good... like they're having a conversation, and it happens to be about writing. And, and he gets grammar in there, which I is fantastic. I think that's a really
0: good tip. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy that for That's that's one
1: that I've handed out a lot in my classroom, and and the Graveyard Book uh, by Neil Gaiman. I hand that one out quite a bit too, mostly to sort of twelve, thirteen year olds. Yeah, that is a good one. Mm -hmm. All right.
0: Now, my last question: Were you to know that you would be banished to a desert island, and you could take three (laughs) books, what three books would those be?
1: Well, see, that depends, because it does, does... Depends the, on what? Well, it does, you know, do I get the complete works of Shakespeare? <laughs> yes, you can, yeah, okay. you can,
0: then well, I have... Okay, well, that, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> asked me this morning, do I get a series? And I said, yeah, you can have a series. So she went with uh, Harry Potter, but I don't know. Shakespeare, uh. all Okay, all right, go ahead. I'll all right, well, if
1: then. if I only get one Shakespeare, then I take King Lear, because okay. that's my favorite, that's my favorite to teach. It's something that um, has been a really, really important um, book for me. And, and this is a weird... The book I've been recommending and giving away the most is actually um, 84 Charing Cross Road Aww. by Helene Hanff. Yeah. That's one of my – that's always been one of my favorite books. Um, I might take a prayer for Owen Meany.
0: Oh. Yeah,
1: that's another favorite um, one that I taught in high school in my American Aww. literature class. So I think they're all books – for the most part, I have books that I love to read and books that I love to teach – um, there are a few books I know by heart like uh, Great Expectations and Tale of Two Cities because I've taught them so many times, them. but the, I'd be tempted to take those too. So, yeah, it would be that would be a really hard one for me.
0: Yeah, it's hard for everybody. Yeah. But well, you... when
1: people say, what are your favorite books, I, I have to say to Teach or to Read because those are two that's very so different categories for me.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you for the book, and thank you for your time with this conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.